Hello, and welcome back to Open Swim. You're here with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz. Eric Kogelschatz. Brian Andrew Jasinski. And Alex Knight. Hey, guys. As you might have noticed, Jennifer is not on with us today. Jen actually happens to be on vacation because as we record this, it is spring break for her dear children. And so she's spending some time with them. But it's also a great opportunity for us to introduce our new format. We have some exciting news. Our firm is growing. Um, We're actually adding several employees in the next few weeks. And it gives us the opportunity to present a curated collection of voices for you. So as the podcast evolves, you'll have the opportunity to hear from different members of the team. And we think that'll add like exciting new breadth and depth. What do you guys think? You excited? I like it. I like it. Super pumped. 100. (laughs) Without further ado, uh, today we're actually tackling a topic that's really interesting for anyone who is passionate about urban revitalization, urbanism, any number of city-related buzzwords and technology. So we're going to be talking about smart cities. So today we're bringing to you a conversation with Carla Rotti, who Eric and I were really excited to interview because we had the opportunity to hear him speak at TED 2011, and it's really fun to catch up with him and hear more of his thoughts on the work that he's been doing. Nice to have you, Carlo. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself. Who is Carlo Rotti? I'm someone who's passionate and excited about cities and about the places we live in. Um, and I try to do that in, uh, first of all, at MIT, where I'm a professor in a run a lab called Sensible City Lab, and also with our design office, uh, innovation design office called Carlo Rotti Associati. Carlo, I'm curious of who some of your mentors are in this, in this industry that's made you so passionate about your life's work. Well, you know, it's, um, it's really about a lot of people who work across boundaries and disciplines. When you look at the space of the smart or sensible city, it really brings together both uh, design, architecture, planning, but also technology, uh, mathematics, uh, complex science. So you, you can name a lot of people who've been working in this space. I think about how Bucky Fuller, Buck Mr. Fuller in the past century, really was in between many different disciplines. Think about the great radical architect, uh, British architect, Cedric Price, and, uh, and many, many others who really try to uh, look at this space uh, without the boundaries of a single discipline. Can you tell us a bit about your firm? Yeah, so, so what we do is both at MIT and uh, at our design office, uh, we really look at the same, look at this kind of new space in between digital and physical. If you want the internet, it becomes internet of things um, and how that is changing the built environment. And at our lab, we look at this from the research point of view. And in our office, in our firm, we look at that when it becomes a design. It can be design of a, of a building, of a city, of an object. Um, and uh, But again, you know, with this kind of, you know, dimension related to innovation and uh, um, digital physical convergence. And what are some of the projects that you're working on right now? In our design office, well, uh, at this very moment, uh, for instance, we're working on a large project in uh, the city of Milan. Um, Milan in a few weeks will host um, uh, Milan Design Week. It's one of the largest events about um, uh, design and architecture all over the world. And uh, we have been actually asked to do the opening uh, act for the Milan Design Week this year. 
And there will be a pavilion in the main square of Milan called Piazza del Duomo. In this pavilion, you have inside the pavilion a garden, uh, a garden with four areas where you've got four different seasons at the same time. So what we are going to do is actually to control lighting levels and the heating and cooling levels in order to create four areas um, that uh, where, where you know you have nature in different in different seasons. And uh, so when you walk through the pavilion, you'll be able to go from spring to summer to autumn to the winter with snow. You'll be able to play snowballs in the winter or, you know, to rest in the sun in the summer. And for us, it's very important because it's a, it's a kind of an experiment and uh, on both uh, bringing nature inside our cities in new ways, uh, but also in controlling climate. And that's something that could be very, very important in the future. That's incredible. What project would you say you're most proud of? Oh, it's very difficult. You know, if, uh, you know, what, what, one answer I could give is, is, you know, it would be the next one. We have a lot of exciting projects coming up. Um, but, you know, all of them and uh, all of them try to explore different dimensions of urban innovation uh, in different ways. And can you talk about those dimensions? Because just in the last example for Milan, you mentioned this control of nature and even just the heating and feeling like you're going through these seasons. What what are those different dimensions that are essential for a smart city or experience? Well, you know, I think when we talk about the smart city, we shouldn't really focus on technology, but we should really focus on the impact on people. So when you look at that, it's about lifestyle, it's about quality of life. Um, and that's why, uh, for instance, you know, outdoor living, nature, uh, community, sharing, uh, and so on. All of these are very important things that are enabled today by technology. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. We do need to look beyond just technology, especially as it's focused on, on the human experience. Carlo, could you tell us about MIT Sensible City Lab and its initiatives in its application to smart cities? At MIT Sensible City Lab, we're we are looking at something very similar, um, you know, looking at um, uh, how Internet of Things is transforming our way to understand, design, and ultimately live in cities. Um, and, but we're doing this from the point of view of research. For instance, we're doing a lot of research on um, on big data. Big data, if you want, is kind of the, the glue that keeps together the smart or sensible city. Uh, you know, we're generating an immense amount of data from, from the built environment. By analyzing it, we can discover very interesting things. Uh, things about mobility, things about how we can use space more efficiently, and so on and so forth. We can really get a sense of the pulse of, uh, of the city. The lab, you really have people from different backgrounds. We think diversity is very, very important. You've got, uh, well, first of all, people all the way from undergraduate students to graduate students to, to postdocs to senior researchers, professors. Uh, and then you've got people from different disciplines. You've got, you know, uh, people coming from design, architecture, planning, but also from more technical disciplines, from engineering, from computer science, uh, even from complex science or mathematics. And also a group of people also dealing with the social sciences. Ultimately, all of this is about, you know, human life in cities. And so it's very important to also cover that, uh, that component. And, um, and so this is the lab. And then the lab works with many companies and cities worldwide uh, in order to do projects, projects of, of urban innovation. Could you tell us about some of the projects you are working on now with the team? Now we're, we're working on many projects at Sensible City Lab. Let me, let me tell you, for instance, about the current project. It's about um, using artificial intelligence applied to all of the images collected by Google. If you think about Google Street View, all the cars by Google that collect information about our cities, and how we can use artificial intelligence in order to better understand green spaces in cities. So by doing that, um, we're developing 
an atlas of cities we call the project Prepedia uh, that basically can help both cities and citizens better understand green spaces and uh, how they could be improved. Going back to smart cities, can you help us to define what a smart city is? As you mentioned, it doesn't have to rely on technology alone. So what really makes up a smart city? We like to use the word sensible city, a city that's able to sense and also sensible. And really a city that puts the human side at the, at the center. Uh, but uh, if you really want look at what is behind it from a technological point of view, it's something quite simple. It's really about the internet becoming internet of things, entering physical space, the space of the city, and sense allowing us a new way to uh, to understand and design uh, uh, the space we live in. Absolutely. And, and how do you, th- you mentioned internet of things, some of the other trends right now that are emerging in mainstream, AI, machine learning, automation, autonomous vehicles, how are they going to change the city as it senses? Really, the Internet of thing, Things is a, is a key enabler. It's about you know, the Internet entering physical space. But for instance, one of the key consequences of this is the huge amount of data we generate now in buildings and in cities. And then we need artificial intelligence to make, make sense of the data. So if you want, there's a whole ecosystem in order to make sense of the smart city. And when we think about the benefits of a smart city, what would you say those are? Obviously, it can affect economics and the prosperity of the community, education, the environment, sustainability. What are some of those benefits of smart cities? The impact of such changes are really manifold, and they touch upon very different fields, certainly about you know, mobility, energy, trans- uh, if you think about uh, many municipal services, but also, of course, education or citizen participation. So all of these spaces can be transformed. And also, this phenomenon, when it touches upon different, different fields, takes different names. For instance, when you think about the fourth industrial revolution, which is radically changing the way of producing goods around the world, um, well, that's just a consequence of uh, Internet of Things applied to production. Uh, in a similar way, when you look at buildings, you know, a lot of what people call smart buildings, it's just a consequence of the same phenomenon, the same IoT, same IoT when it enters uh, our homes. So such changes can really affect many urban dimensions. Now, the interesting thing is that we, if we play this right, in general, we can actually have a city that's more efficient, so it saves energy, it's more sustainable, but also a city where we share things better. Uh, think about sharing mobility, think about sharing space, and so on. So somehow, you know, if you play it right, then the consequences of all of this could be a city that focuses more on sustainability and also on sociability. We've talked a lot about, you know, smart cities and sensible cities and the relationship with the Internet of Things and how that it was going to propel smart cities into our world as we know it. I'm curious, there's a lot of news out about, you know, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and people's data being um, tracked and used for many reasons. I'm curious with all of this, with big data in general and using it to make things more efficient, I'm curious, are there any ethical dilemmas that come along with the implementation of these sensible or smart cities? The, the data component is very, very important. And, uh, and of course, you know, when you talk about large amounts of data, there is many open questions about you, who owns the data, who has access to the data, what is it used for? So I think there are some very important questions we need to look at. And I would say these questions are not only related to smart cities, and something much, much broader is really about our society today, about all the data we generate when we go online, when we make a phone call, when we post on Facebook or on Instagram and so on. And then, you know, who, who's using the data and what for? Carlo, when you are experimenting with this new technology, is the process to kind of build a city from scratch? 
and, and manipulate it the way you want? Or do you kind of go to a certain city and you look for certain qualities to start implementing smart buildings, smart sidewalks, things like that? Um, are there certain qualities that you look for in, in a city before you start implementing these ideas? The, the interesting thing about many of these technologies, you know, technologies of, uh, of Internet of Things that combine physical and digital, but well, the interesting thing is that it can be applied to any city, so we can really retrofit existing cities. And that's good news because you know, most of the urban fabric around the world has been built. At the same time, when you're doing a new city from scratch, then you sometimes can actually push the boundary more. So there's also a few experiments going on around the planet where people are trying to see, well, and imagining, what if I were to, to develop a whole new neighborhood, a whole new city? And with this in mind, what could I do? And I think that's important as well because, yes, it allows us to be uh, more creative and to push the boundary. So I'm curious to know, what does the future look like for smart cities? Technology is always an enabler. So technology can go in many different directions. It can allow us to do more things, but it's really up to us to see which way we want to go. And I really hope that some of these technologies will allow us to make our cities more sustainable, to save a lot of energy. Um, and also more sociable, because that's the ultimate goal of the city, is really to bring us together. In the next year, I, I've heard that 2018 should be a big year for smart and sensible cities. In the next one to five years, what, what can people across the world or people across cities really see change? I would say what's happening today is similar to the first wave of the internet. And, you know, that was in the 1990s, well, about digitization. And if you look at what's happening today in this space, is uh, kind of a... Another wave, it's not the way of the internet, but of, of internet of things. And so there are so many innovations that deal with uh, mobility. If you think about self-driving cars are part of this. If you think about innovations related to, to our buildings, uh, to the way, you know, we they touch upon most dimensions of urban life. And, and so really the, the exciting thing is how a big, rich uh, innovation ecosystem, a bottom-up innovation ecosystem is really starting up today that, uh, that can uh, transform our cities. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. It was great, and thanks a lot for all the very good questions. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing all those hopes down the drain. Viva Las Vegas turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again. It's really great to get Carlo's perspective on this institution of the concept of smart cities. A lot of the inf information that I was finding as I was researching and thinking, you know, looking forward to this podcast and this topic that we're, that we're discussing today was the idea of what's out there, what's happening, and but what are some of the roadblocks that are inherent to the idea of implementation of smart cities. There's a lot of really fascinating things happening out there. For example, in the UK, the idea, you know, what I kept coming across was that 2018 is the year of smart cities. And the idea that there's incredible technology and uh, explorations out there, beyond, you know, I th feel like all we hear about is the smart car. But the idea of the quite the opposite of the car is a return to pedestrian, public transportation, and bicycling as a mode of transportation. But not only is that uh, a positive impact on the environment in terms of the lack of pollution, but it also that what, what I feel is interesting is they're taking it a step further and harnessing that energy from pedestrians and cyclists um, and finding a way where that it's almost like solar panels for 
um, the, that motion and, and harnessing the energy that's being exerted by the pedestrians or the cyclists into a power source, which I thought so was So what you're saying is that the smartest smart car out there isn't a car. Exactly, exactly. Which and a lot of people are talking about, you know, you uh, especially cyclist cycling enthusiasts, is the idea that roads were originally for pedestrians, and the fact that we are so conditioned to roads equal cars, but there really is a full circle return to the idea that roads are actually meant for pedestrians and cyclists and and not cars. And but there's clearly, you know, the ongoing uh, adage that you know cyclists and pedestrians are always in the way, but they. I, I do find more and more, it, I think it's evident across the world that there's a return to a respect for the pedestrian and the cyclist, and they're applying that resurgence and those modes of transportation into a positive way for this whole idea of smart cities. You know what it makes me think of? Eric, do you remember when we had a speaker named Errol Lemieux at TEDx Clee several years ago? And he had developed a device called the Empower Peg. And what it was, was something that you would either keep in your backpack when you were walking or cycling. You know, a lot of military men and women, it was something they could keep in their backpacks as they were out on tours of duty. And it would generate electricity based on your movements. So if you were walking or running or biking, it would be able to generate electricity and power your devices. It's sort of like an application of that, exactly. but within the infrastructure of within the city. A, in a much larger, yeah, not just a, a personal ch- charge, if you will, but a, a charge for the, for the whole of the city. Um, but one of the things that I think is fascinating is this idea that it's not a one solution for all. Um, and I, you know, it reminded me a lot of, for example, we're from Cleveland and a lot of people are always saying, well, why don't we just look to Chicago and what Chicago does? And I've never agreed with that because every city is different. There's different infrastructure, there's different challenges, there's different literal landscapes as well as um, proverbial landscapes. So I was reading an article on Forbes by John Maycomber and it very much was a very striking thought to me that one of the problems in terms of the implementation of smart cities is that at the heart of everything, cities are not corporations and they don't work like corporations, but quite often the solution is approached as if a city is a corporation. Um, The problem with that is that cities tend to be siloed, so there's not departments that work together. There's very rarely a crossover in terms of the solution of those problems. Um, There's also the issue of funding and the idea of, you know, through the idea of the city leaders and politics, there's not really one individual or team that can fully vet and take on the initiative. You know, I've often seen people muse around the idea of do cities actually need like a CTO, a chief technology officer, Mm. because of that very issue. And the idea that it's not just that there are siloed departments, but each of those departments has a very different set of priorities, even though they're all focused on moving a city forward, sometimes because of their practice area, you know, they have things that are just, you know, very urgent for them or very important for them to keep their eye on. Um, But nobody's keeping an eye on how do we weave all this together for the advancement and the not just technological advancement, but the human advancement of the city. So I think that's a um, kind of interesting thought on, you know, maybe a new role that should be present within cities. And I know there are a few cities that have actually hired a person like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it'll be fascinating to see if others 
come on board. And what's dangerous too, you know, as expressed in this article is when you don't have somebody that is in a sense keeping that watch, it opens the door for what he describes as aggressive vendors that then have the room to step into the mm-hmm. breach and implement concepts and ideas that are their own outside of any so organization. yeah. Exactly. Outside of any organization or organizational uh, context. Hmm. And it is interesting to think about a city that doesn't act like a business because really their purpose is to be the engine for the community to make sure it's operating smoothly and everyone's getting the services they pay for through taxes. And I think that's what makes uh, gives a city a unique problem in that people that do pay taxes, therefore the city, and there's an ownership in the city because it is their home. So there's suddenly you know, hundreds and upon hundreds of quote unquote CEOs that all believe like their idea needs to be implemented and heard. So there really is, you know, that's a whole different topic for the balance of, of, of politics and city governments. Um, but I think that plays into what, you know, Eric, what you're saying is that frustration almost. And I think that's why I find it so fascinating that people are, are starting to call these cities sensing cities instead of smart because smart means they have technology built into them they are connected they operate on their own and are doing this regardless of the subjects that are in that city so thinking about it as a sensing city and this is something that carlo is a strong believer of is that it it understands every piece within the city and how to adapt to it and transforms so that it really creates the best environment and focuses on that experience that they have. So putting on my conspiracy theory hat, because I want to do that, I wonder if it truly is a security issue for cities not to pursue, you know, what their future might look like as sensing city, because if they don't do it, Brian, as you mentioned, there may be other entities that come in and privatize that. And what may happen is that the city is actually then collecting data, and as a city, they don't own that data. So, you know, so much of as we, you know, move deeper and deeper into a digital society depends on who owns the data and the quality of that data, and then how is it used. I mean, we're living in an environment where, you know, we just came off of the Cambridge Analytica issue with Facebook. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is testifying next week, you know, so much of what we are concerned about in society is data driven. So how do cities make sure that their civic data and their citizens data is safe? Hallie, I I completely agree that there are, again, as I said earlier, it's just all about the many layers of decision making and authority within a city. Um, The three aspects to establishing a smart city that John talks about was situation. The fact that as I said earlier, all cities are not alike, so it's to approach all of them in the same way is is insane. <laughs> it you know it, it makes no sense. Um, he divided into to four uh, aspects of a city: densities in developed economies, densities in emerging economies, low density cities in developed economies, and low density cities in emerging economies. So they all have very different configurations and different infrastructure and different needs. So there's, there's that aspect. The idea of a solution, um, technology, technology projects are inherent to the programming of a city, to the, as I said earlier, the needs of a city, and what the management and the existing uh, uh, attributes that a city possesses are. And lastly, sovereignty. Um, the idea of who decides what, and that comes down to what we talked about earlier about if somebody from the public or a private investor were to come in, you know, um, who's buying into these ideas, 
Is it the private sector? Is it visionaries in the civic realm, uh, applications by the public or voting? It goes on and on. So I think that's what it comes down to is that there's so many, as opposed to a corporation, to me it comes down to the fact that you are very forward-facing with the public and the people that live in that city. And that's such a big conversation with city governments right now, you know, around transparency and conversation and communication. Um, So I think, if nothing else, as they make their way through this digitally laden world, it's important to keep that conversation open. And as citizens, it's important for us to let our cities know what we expect from them and um, just get the most out of what the future holds for sensing cities. Absolutely. And, it, and it's a brave new frontier, too, because it, as opposed to in the past where it was uh, something that was very physical and decided on that people would see and be able to drive past or experience physically, that, that not all people are going to be able to understand and embrace. So therefore, the decision making is very disjointed. I think the aspect um, of embracing is a really important facet to this conversation. I remember I was watching Sunday morning within the last six months, and they were talking about a community of people just outside of Atlanta that created this sort of utopian society. It's void completely of technology. And so going back to sort of the classic ways of, of neighborhood making and place making, and that's a good example of the fear and mistrust that a lot of people have of the sensing city and of technology in general. And so I think it's going to be something that we sort of struggle our way through um, as a society and figure out like what is the balance you know how much do we want sensed you know what's helpful versus potentially hurtful or at least anxiety provoking for citizens Um, and then how do we implement it in a way that will actually move society forward what's the sense of education too because it's and it it becomes the proverbial new fence between homes Mm -hmm. those who understand it and embrace it and those who may not understand it and and as you said be fearful of it so it it will be interesting to see how I think it comes down to education and understanding this is going to be the issue the next issue of our generation remember when everyone's dad used to call them I'm not saying my dad does this but like dad calls and says like how do I use my computer I forgot my gmail password and whatever this is going to be that next issue like this is what your parents are going to be calling you about is like wait is that bench really taking my blood pressure (laughs) (laughs) it's up to you This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Alphabet's Sidewalk Labs, who is transforming a blighted, contaminated area of Toronto on the waterfront into one of the world's most innovative city neighborhoods. And the name of this new area will be called Quayside. Uh, They actually were just featured in MIT Technology Review, so if you want to check that out, you can find the article online. In our conversation today, as we talked about thoughtful design and strategy within cities, My Bigger Boat goes out to 
Land Studio. Land Studio is a local nonprofit here in Cleveland whose mission is to create places and connect people through public art, sustainable building and design, collaborative planning, and dynamic programming. Land Studio is all about the bringing together of innovative ideas and inclusive public conversations and planning efforts, which to me is the ultimate smart city. This episode of My Bigger Boat goes out to the city of Cleveland, my soon-to-be home. I'm really looking forward to the future of this awesome city and experiencing it as a resident, as an official resident, and hopefully we'll be seeing some smart elements of sensible cities soon. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to the city of Memphis, which is the home base of the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel. We're recording this a day after the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination at that hotel, and we are so inspired by the way that they continue to move his vision and purpose and mission forward um, and really model behaviors that should be an inspiration to us across the nation. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at Kent State University Cleveland Urban Design Collaborative, an innovative nonprofit urban design practice committed to a sustainable, vibrant, and inclusive urban future. Learn more at cudc.kent.edu. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at sharkandminnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey. 